Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. A little bit blind spotted. We had some blind spots. We were aware of some of the effects we were having on some of the people. The people who would be not aligned with the slate that took over to save our school slate, I guess they would call themselves. They got their act together. That's part of it. Two or three of us got together and started thinking about how can we make a difference in our community? So I think having a group like United His Neighbors that's kind of working specifically on breaking down the polarization is very helpful. We're in this together and we need everybody's voice. All right, folks, today we had a very fun podcast with Ron Mock. Ron Mock is the director of the George Fox University Civility Project and Professor Emeritus of Politics and Peace Studies at George Fox. And that part of his background plays a prominent role in our conversation. But he's also a former member of the Newburgh School Board. And actually, he is one of the candidates who his loss is what triggered this conservative majority's ability to, you know, do what they did, attempt to ban pride flags and Black Lives Matter symbols, ultimately fire the superintendent and a whole host of other things that eventually led to their losses for reelection this year in 2023. So Ron was a fascinating person to talk to, and I think everyone will find things in this conversation that they both disagree with and agree with. And I think Ron is the perfect person to have this conversation. So he directs the Civility Project. He is a pacifist, as you'll hear in this episode. He is a deep believer in conflict resolution and nonviolence and mediation and peacemaking. And this incredibly divisive, polarizing thing happened in his community and happened in a way that put Newberg in the national spotlight. And as Ron says, the international spotlight because of what happened. So I've been wanting to do an episode on the Newberg school board situation for a while. And I think Ron was the perfect person to do it. And now is the right time to do it because there's enough distance to sort of see what happened and what impacts it had. So we'll recap what exactly happened in Newberg, how it happened with Ron's perspective on it. And he tracked the situation very closely, probably as closely as any person not involved directly in the school district anymore. We'll talk about what happened when the majority took over, what the fallout was in the community. And then importantly, and I think this will be useful for folks, what lessons should the rest of us who don't live in Newburgh, and particularly folks maybe who are seeing political polarization take hold in their community, what lessons can be learned and what specific things can be done in your community preemptively, proactively to stave off this kind of division and really unhealthy civic culture that happened in Newburgh. So we talk about that. And then at the end, we talk about civility more broadly. And I challenge Ron a little bit on when his framework for civility should apply. And what about in egregious situations? What about when democracy is at threat? What about when human rights are at threat? And Ron is an incredibly thoughtful person who will share his perspectives. As I told him at the end, I disagreed with him on several important points, including the last section. But I found a lot of value in hearing his perspective, and I think you will too. And I think he challenges all of us to think a little bit differently about our role as people in the political space, whether we're political actors or community members or just voters. This is an important moment in American history that we are living through, and we've all got a chance to to be productive forces. So with that, I will stop talking, and I will let you enjoy the interview with Ron Mock. Now that the legislative session is over, it's time for Oregon's activists, candidates, and political committees to turn their attention to the 2024 elections. With government regulation of political activities becoming more complicated nearly every year, and with political actors increasingly initiating complaints and litigation to achieve political goals, having experienced legal counsel has become critical to success in the political arena. Harang Long PC has represented clients involved in candidate and ballot measure elections for decades. To learn more about Harang Long's political law practice, check out our website at harang.com. That's www.harrang.com. All right, Ron Mock, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Very excited to talk to you and to kind of return the favor. You hosted Reagan and I at George Fox a couple weeks ago, which we may talk about in this podcast. But before we get to that, give me the two-minute version of how you ended up at George Fox University. 
You mean originally? Yeah, because weren't you a student there? there? Yeah, I was a student there back in the 70s. Just chosen because it was close and small, and I was looking for a Christian college. And they had a poli-sci major there, which disappeared as soon as I got there because the (laughs) professor left. So I had to make it into my own design joint poli-sci international studies major. And is that why you have focused on, you refer to it as peacemaking, but I think of it as kind of like almost like more international focus. Like I think you wrote a book or, or at least a piece on like Israel and Palestine and that kind of stuff. Was it because your undergrad original major wasn't available? Well, I mean, it was available in a way. The key parts I needed were there. And then I went on to get a master's degree in public administration and later a law degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I really got into anything that would be remotely called peacemaking until after my law school experience, when I saw how much time and energy people were spending in litigation and the results weren't always even very helpful to them. And in mm-hmm. the process, they've been shredding their relationships and so forth. Mm-hmm. So after about a year of that, watching as an attorney for the Michigan Court of Appeals, where I was, I decided I would like to try to see if I could help develop alternatives. And I got involved in mediation work, set up a Christian conciliation service in the Detroit, Michigan area, and helped run that for a couple of years before I came back to Oregon. And George Fox asked me to come in 1985, when I had been working in, a, in the mediation program for a couple of years, to add a interpersonal dimension to the peace studies dimension of the new center for peace learning that they had established. Lon Fendel, one of Mark Hatfield's sort of co-conspirators through the years, was running the program at the time. See, I was going to ask you, Ron, because I saw that the book you wrote has a foreword written by Senator Hatfield. So I was going to ask you how that came about. Well, the publisher wanted me to find somebody who might have some weight to write the foreword. So I think Lon actually suggested that I ask Senator Hatfield to do that. And he agreed to do that. And so that was how that got on there. That book is not specifically about Israel and Palestine, although that covers it. It's about terrorism in general. Mm-hmm. It was written in direct response to the 9-11 attacks. And about half of it was written within three weeks. <laughs> and the rest of it took longer. And I finished it about a year later. So, well, so I was going to ask you, I mean, about whether we call it peacemaking or conflict resolution or mediation I know your faith is very important to you, and you use the label Christian to describe Mm -hmm. the response, Christian peacemaking. Can you, to the audience, describe why that is meaningful or what that means to be Christian in your orientation to, say, conflict resolution or mediation? That's really a good question. There are probably several ways that it means something that might be a little bit distinctive. One of the things I think is most advantageous for my work is that it gives me a basis for what I'll call hope. The idea that things don't have to be as bad as they are. They're not intended to be bad, that everybody is intended to be able to have means to meet their needs. That's not Mm -hmm. just aspirational and we don't just imagine it. It's part of what I understand God's love for us to be. And so this comes up, for example, like I've done a lot of mediation training courses for the Yamhill County Mediation Program. And somewhere along in, in all those trainings, I tell the mediators that when parties come to dispute, they're usually kind of desperate. They don't come unless they're getting kind of desperate. Usually, they usually don't have much hope that it's going to work, but they just want to try it for a last resort. Mm-hmm. And the mediations often are difficult at the beginning because people are just really angry with each other. And their job as mediator is to be the one person in the room who doesn't lose hope. The one person mm-hmm. in the room who says, no, no, this is still, we're still fine. We still have good chance of making an outcome here. And they have to figure out where that basis of hope comes from. And for me, it comes from my faith. So I tend to be the last person in the room to lose hope in a situation like that. So that's Hmm. one way that I think coming from a faith perspective might make a difference. That's really interesting. And I think maybe we'll provide some useful context to listeners as we speak more locally about Newburgh and what happened in Newburgh. So you get appointed to the school board in 2012. Is that right? Yeah, there was a vacancy and I applied and got appointed. Yes. Okay. So you're, and okay, side note, you're currently and formerly a Dundee planning commissioner. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. I'm one of the, one of the rare people that can go to a planning commission meeting and come out excited about what happened. <laughs> you know, or right? even yeah. awake, even awake yeah. is impressive sometimes. Okay. So you've done some local government stuff. You're clearly a civic leader in the Newburgh Dundee sort of portion of Yamhill County. You end up on the school board, you get appointed. I think you win your first re-election. Do you win your I second win re-election? I win you win your second re-election. 
And then you're up for your third re-election. And tell us about that campaign. This was obviously, our listeners will now know like what has happened in Newburgh. This has been very well publicized, not just in the state, but across the country. And we'll talk a little bit about what happened. But this moment where you get a challenger in your school board race is before we know any of that. It is sort of perhaps a precursor. I'm wondering, like, what was that campaign like? Did you have any sense of the division and polarization that was about to take hold? Not Certainly not the scope or depth of the depolarization that was about to take hold, but part of it was already happening. In fact, this hmm. civility project was already underway. We started it in the fall of November 2020, okay. and this election was in 2021. We have the school board elections on the odd years in the spring. Mm-hmm. And there was a slate, a pretty distinctively slate of candidates. There were, oh, gee, I'm going to get this wrong, four positions. There were four mm-hmm. positions open, that, and there were four candidates who were getting all their money from the same places, mm-hmm. Republican Party sources, mm-hmm. and they were running. They ran cooperatively. They had signs that were joint signs, and the positions they took were coordinated and all that stuff. So it was definitely a slate. I could see that happening, and I reacted to part of it correctly, mm-hmm. I think. I thought that was inappropriate for a school board election to be so partisan, so openly partisan. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was barely any attempt to hide that they were basically running as part of the Republican effort. And in response, some of the people running to preserve their seat, and there was one person running it to be a new member of the board, mm-hmm. and they ran basically as a slate uh, in response. And they kind of asked me if I would join them. And I said, no, hmm. I did not want to be tied to either party. There are resources that came from traditionally, or I don't know which traditionally, sources that would be associated with the Democratic Party. I don't, mm-hmm. they think they made a big distinction. They were not running as Democrats. I don't see the distinction. There was actually some conflict amongst us about that. Hmm. And I wanted to run on my own uh, without being part of a slate because I would thought the principle of, Nonpartisanship was important to preserve. And I thought I was going to win. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I thought I could demonstrate that. I also thought that uh, I could see that there was a lot of money coming in comparatively yeah. to what normally happens in a local election like that. Can you give a sense I, to folks what that means? Like, what is a normal election? How much money is coming in? And then what did it look like in that election? Uh, well, I don't know what it normally is, but I had never had to raise money to go beyond the reporting limit, $700 or whatever it is. Right. And so I thought I would just stay under that limit and demonstrate that you don't need the outside money. And you don't need to be in a slate. You can win any election. Unfortunately, I lost the election. <laughs> My you may have team, unfortunately proved the opposite. Yeah, right? I may have. At least <laughs> one of those two I was wrong about, apparently. I lost it 52 to 48%, which was close. So clearly, if I had done something different, I might have changed that outcome. I bought 15 campaign signs and everybody else had dozens. Yeah. So what I did is I put mine out and then I'd move them every few days. <laughs> make it look like there were more of them. It didn't work. Squeezing water out of a rock, I think, is what you were trying yeah. to do there. Yeah. I, so yeah, Ron- I read online somebody doing a postmortem on the election and there was a person who was somewhat active in school board affairs who said, Ron Mock didn't even campaign, which wasn't true, but apparently I didn't campaign enough, so she noticed. (laughs) That's funny. So before we talk about what happened next, in you started in 2012, you know, Mm -hmm. famously the you know, Barack Obama gets elected in 2008, the Tea Party sort of movement kicks off in 2010, Trump gets elected in 2016. Are you sensing in your time on the school board, this filtering down into your community? Are you sensing a sense of like more divisiveness or did it really kind of come as a surprise in 2021? Not not as a surprise in 2021 and the 2019 elections, some of the, so in the 2013 and 15 elections, I think most of them or all of them were uncontested. In the 2019 election, there were some contested seats and two guys got onto the board, one of whom I've known for a long time, a guy I really like. That's Dave Brown. And the other one was a new guy I hadn't met, who I actually voted for, (laughs) Brian Shannon. Uh, When Brian got on there in particular, he clearly had an agenda in mind. And I think what had happened in before that, I think if you had asked me and I'd said, yeah, there's some divisions in our community, but I didn't see them sharply. I think Mm -hmm. my perception Mm -hmm. blunted by the fact that the version of the dissent that Brian Shannon represented, was not represented on the board. So I wasn't hearing it from board members. The board members up until 2019 were, I was probably the right-wing member of the board. I'm not (laughs) a Republican. I'm not in any party. But 
the general consensus about what to do about equity issues and things like that, inclusion and all that stuff was pretty strong. I wasn't quite in it as much as some of the others, but we were all within a range. Brian was outside that range. And as it turns out, Dave was too. Hmm. And, and Brian was pretty confrontive right from the beginning, particularly with our board chair. I did see it most of it directly, but it was mostly with our board chair. I was the vice chair at that time. I see. And, and so the tenor on it changed. And it, I think Brian's presence there may have encouraged some of the voices that were very dissatisfied with that, those kinds of issues, the way they were being handled for them to come to meetings. So it became clear pretty quickly how deeply it was, but I think it had been masked by the lack of actual access to the board itself. That's really interesting. Okay, yeah. so the election is over. The new sort of conservative board majority takes over. In 21, that we had a board majority. So the 2019, they didn't get a majority. Right, in yeah. Got the majority. Right. In 21, you lose your race. I think it's Trevor DeHart comes on in your space, and then there's one other conservative candidate. No. That's right. So yeah. they now have a majority on the board. Yeah. This has been relatively well documented, but can you give give us a summary? What happened? What happened when this new majority took over and how did it feel in the community when this was happening? Well, right away, the first meeting after they'd had their election, well, okay. The first meeting they had to elect a, a board chair and the huh. prior board chair, Brandy Penner, ran, was nominated. And so was Dave Brown. And Brandy kind of started off with a kind of out of order campaign speech. I mean, there really wasn't in order to have her do this. And she laid out a litany of all the reasons why Dave Brown would be a bad chair. Hmm. It was delivered in a very confrontive voice, very dismissive. Some of the things she said were actually true about his lack of preparation and his general relatively casual approach to his board membership, which was fine hmm. when he was a regular member, but would be a problem when he was going to be chair. Sure. Mm -hmm. So what she said had truth in it, but the way it was delivered was pretty ad hominem, pretty, mm. what I want to say, harsh. Okay. Sort of set them up, I think, helped set them up to be on it. And this was the first introduction that Trevor and Renee, for example, had to Brandy. She lost four to three. They had a party line vote, basically. And from then on, until she resigned, eventually she resigned and the other two members who had been carried over, Inez Pena, who actually won during the 21 election, and Rebecca Pyros, mm -hmm. were both, all of them eventually resigned. Brandy had been getting threats and people were following her around when she was driving out in a place where she lived in the countryside. So she was just afraid for her family and she couldn't take it. So she resigned. I don't know. Inez may have also been getting that kind of treatment. She was treated very disrespectfully by Brian, although at the time they were on there together. Hmm. And then Rebecca had health issues. And I think basically she just couldn't stand the stress anyway. So by the end of, by they say a year after the 21 election or a little mm -hmm. after, I can't remember exactly that summer of 22, they had been able to replace those three with their appointments. And they were a solidly 7-0, basically, conservative board. So what kind of things did they do? Oh, yeah. Well, the first the first night after that brutal election for the chair, Brian introduced some three resolutions. One was the famous one to ban the BLM signs and the gay pride flags from school right. property. The employees should not be putting these things up. The second was to revoke a decision that we'd made a year earlier to adopt a state-mandated policy that would ban the swastika, the Confederate battle flag, and nooses from anybody putting them up, students in particular. I worked that, on developing that rule at ODE, the Every Student Belongs rule. Yeah. And then there's a third one, and I can't remember exactly what the third one was, but it was similar in tenor. The only one of those three they ever debated or discussed was the first one about banning the gay pride and Black Lives Matter. And originally, the version that they used was just aimed at those two things. And they were getting advice from an attorney that they hired, the four of them hired, to represent the four of them. <laughs> Theoretically, the board, but they were, he was only representing the four of them. The other three didn't have anything to do with them, and he never did anything for them. This is despite the fact that the district had its own attorneys already, you know, they could have used a light on them. I think they got really bad advice from the attorney that they hired. They got a lot of pushback. I mean, the thing that caught my eye right away was in the same day, Brian introduced a motion to ban the BLM flag and the gay pride, BLM signs the gay pride flag, and to allow, <laughs> to revoke the, the Every Student Belongs. To allow hate symbols. allow... Confederate flags, swastikas, and 
Now, he makes a point. He has a point. He's saying the first one is directed at staff. Okay. And it's true that their free speech rights aren't 100% complete in a public school setting. Correct. Right. The second one is directed at students. And again, so you could say those are two different groups. And he was trying to enhance the free speech rights of the students. And limit he thought the free speech. something that might be justified to limit the free speech rights of teachers. But the optics are terrible. Right. are absolutely terrible. And it's almost no news coverage is going to get the distinction that Brian was trying to make. And so it was pretty enraging to a significant section of our community, which I think the 5248 was an emblem because we did several more things, 5248 over the next couple of years. My outside read of the situation was that the climax was probably when Joe Morlock got the axe mm -hmm. from the mm -hmm. board. And that's when you started seeing sort of rallies of people. Well, and... Not when it started, but they picked up then, sure. Okay, okay. This is in August. We're talking July and August already before school started that year. And that's when we started getting all the coverage. Right at the end of the summer, right at the beginning of the school year, we had the staffer who thought it might be cute to kind of do blackface. Oh, my uh, God. I can't remember what the reason was, that she thought this was okay. Oh, my and God. She got in trouble. that because it was seemed very demeaning to people and there were other things like that that went on the original version of the motion that brian made they decided that they needed to abandon that approach and they had their attorney their own private attorney write a uh, version that stepped back from that and just tried to ban controversial items right and, and then to rely on the complaint policy as for enforcement but the first time any of them came up which took all the way to november or december was about someone who had was a teacher who had put a picture of a unicorn in her window. There was a, some kind of rainbow color scheme and I see. said every kid belongs or something like that. Oh, yeah, it, uh, be known. They used the George Fox's uh, marketing strategy uh, slogan, be known. She wanted every kid to be oh, known. Wow. But it had the rainbow, rainbow colors on it. And Brian himself said, in the public meeting, my daughter has rainbow pajamas. They can't be by themselves enough for this. And so they never acted on that. They never acted, as far as I know, the board never acted on any of those complaints. They never enforced it because they couldn't. It was right. right, right. Yeah. So okay, so it was, it was yes, unfortunate. So there's, you know, all these things happen. The board is doing all these things. They eventually fire the superintendent. That was a very controversial thing. In fact, there's litigation about that right now. Uh, oh, is it? Is it still ongoing? Yeah, I saw a thing. Oh, I should have this up. I don't have it up. I can see it now. But a couple of weeks ago, last week and a half ago, a case that was filed by constituents in the district yes. was filed under trial or something like this about whether that firing was legal because of the way that they may have mismanaged their meetings. Yep, and not follow public meeting laws. That's right. Yeah. Brian and the others insisted that they never did because they never met as all four, but he's ignoring the precedent of, for the serial meetings. Serial call. meetings, yeah. yeah. This is a very fascinating thing that people in yeah. politics all get trained on, but people outside yeah. of politics, like you can't have a meeting with a majority or a quorum of the board together. Right. But you also can't, like, I call Ron, Ron calls Steve, Steve calls Sarah. That's considered a serial meeting. So even if you weren't all together, if you're talking about the business of the board in that way, you're still violating the public meetings law. So that's what's being alleged here. Right. And the three that were carried over from before were still on the board at that time. And they never had any part of those conversations. Everything seemed to be just cooked already when they got there. Yeah. So that's so where the uh, suspicion is that these were serial meetings. We could drill deeply into any number of these things oh, and yes. all the things that happened. But I guess when I you're off the board at this point. Yes. So can you just describe like what you're observing, what you're seeing in the community when this controversy is happening? And literally Newberg is in the national spotlight for several moments oh, here. Yeah. Like what's happening? I think I yeah. caught a piece from British some British media. <laughs> Kind of inaccurately, they didn't know where we were. <laughs> <laughs> but so, what's happening in Newburgh while this is all happening? Uh, see, this is spilling out into the community, partly because there was litigation filed by constituents against the board and by the board against constituents, by the four members of the board against the constituents. And then there's a recall election, first against Brian and then against both Brian and David, Dave Brown, that gets resolved in the winter of, I guess this is 
22. And then there's a lot of stuff on social media, of course, lots of things. And, you know, people are organizing boycotts of businesses for the people they disagree with. Some people on the right don't want to go to advise going to certain businesses because they're supporting the left. And I saw some people on the left trying to boycott Renee Powell's art display, having trying to get somebody to take it down from one of the businesses because Renee Powell shouldn't be able to. I actually were against that. I thought that was unfair and and bad. And basically what it was doing, the trend was that we would have a nice little apartheid town mm-hmm. where the progressives would go to some schools, some stores and maybe some churches and the, and the conservatives would go to different ones and it would be just two different communities. I mean, I, that's that would be the extreme version of it, but that's the trend that was going. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to get into this, but that for some of us laid over a division in the Quaker Church, which has the Northwest headquarters for the Quaker Church around Newburgh and supported the the school. But they had a split in 2017, which still is kind of bitter mm-hmm. uh, by 2022 and still today. And so we saw churches split a little bit of an apartheid amongst friends, Quakers, wow. even in our own town. And so that's kind of all in the what's bubbling in the community, even before 2021, because of the, that. Well, this is why I think you personally are such an interesting figure in this mix, because you literally run what's called the Civility Project. Yeah. You've spent mm-hmm. your life working on peacemaking and conflict mediation and, you know, resolving these sort of entrenched conflicts. And you get booted off the board in the moment where you maybe were most needed to be there. And you're watching this happen in your community. So how are you, what are you thinking about? Like, what, what, how are you processing what's happening? Are you trying to be involved behind the scenes in resolving this? Or are you kind of saying, you know, I'm out of the game right now? Like, what is it like being a conflict resolution expert watching tremendous conflict erupt in your community? Well, the fact that it's right here in my community with people I know, highly motivated. I mean, it's hard not to be motivated. As I mentioned, I've known Dave Brown for a long time, for example. He has been a coach in the community for a long time. I think just about all my kids have been coached by him at some point Mm -hmm. or another in some kind of youth sports. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I like him. I think he's a nice guy. I'm not endorsing everything he did while he was chair of the board. There are things I'm very disappointed about, but I didn't want there to be a person like him who's devoted so much to the community. I didn't want him to become anathema or an enemy to have Mm -hmm. the community. So that's, that's a specific example, but also the fact that this kind of re at some points in the community reinforced the the divisions that had split the Quakers. Mm-hmm. That was troubling to me. And none of it seemed necessary. So mm. for example, when they were, I was watching most of the school board meetings for the whole year after I was out. I kind mm-hmm. of went up on that as a discipline for these last years. <laughs> I was watching those and I was listening to all the debate about the Black Lives Matter and the gay pride stuff. And the justification for putting those up on the part of faculty was to make sure that minority kids and LGBTQ kids would feel welcome in the classroom. It was a message of welcome that you're mm-hmm. safe here and you're we're happy you're here. But I also heard from other people whose kids found that to make it as marking that men as enemy territory. If they were, say, children of police officers, who the police officers seeing BLM as being sort of anti-police or go get the police. That's many police officers interpret it that way. I could see a kid from that family coming in and seeing that sign and saying, oh, this is not friendly territory to me. And none of the members of the board ever said, and I think I don't think any of them would ever say, that it's okay if some of our kids don't feel welcome in our classroom. All of them were trying to defend making the classrooms welcome to everybody in their own way, in their own perception. Rebecca Pyros tried several times to get them to say, hey, yeah, look at this. <laughs> You're all saying that all the kids should be welcome in the classroom. Let's figure out a way to answer the question of how to get everybody welcome in the classroom. Let's not do one-sided policies that are going to be un- hard to operate. Let's figure out, you know, let's get the faculty, the teachers to help us figure out how to do it right so that every kid is welcome in the classroom. So you're not accidentally telling one kid you're not welcome while you're telling other kids you are. That kind of thing, I think, I don't think it would have been that hard to work. I mean, there have been mediations I've handled that have been more tougher than that one. <laughs> and I think that, so it just seems such a waste and such a loss to our community that people couldn't find a way to say, hey, let's find the common ground and work from there. I'm resist. I like, I think everybody has their own opinions, right? About like what should be, what shouldn't be. And I'm resisting the urge to share what I think, because I think your yeah. point here is like, everybody's got their own idea or opinion. 
Yeah. But in a complex society with lots of viewpoints and experiences, mm-hmm. you don't get to just have your way, or at least you can't sustainably have your way, as the conservative majority on the board quickly learned, because it builds the sort of distrust bubbles. Yeah. Um, well, I think and, I think everybody should be learning that. Because yeah. for a long time, like I said, there was essentially no dissent on the board. I think we got a little bit blind spotted. We had some blind spots. We weren't, so, we weren't aware of some of the effects that people were, some of the effects we were having on some of the people. What's yeah. your explanation for how the conservative majority lost their majority on the board? Well, unfortunately, for my theory about what should happen in local elections, the people who would be not aligned with the slate that took over to save our school slate, I guess they would call themselves, they got their act together. That's part of it. So there was money on both sides. There were two slates running against two slates. of. There were five seats now because all the resignations there were five seats mm-hmm. up in the 23 election. And each had one candidate from each sort of perspective. The people who were running against the incumbents tried to resist calling themselves a slate. I'm afraid that's not very convincing. But it is true that they probably had a little more diversity of opinion, at least in terms of party affiliation and things like that, than the people who were incumbent at that time. But they did run as allies. They didn't do a lot of as much sort of joint advertising and stuff, but they got money from the same sources and so forth. But there was one other thing that happened that I think had a bearing on, well, a series of things that happened. So this is going to be a little bit of a long story. You want me to just launch into it? Let's do it. Yeah, let's okay. do it. That's why podcasts are awesome. We don't have yeah, no 30 second it. sound bites. Yeah. <laughs> so we started the Civility Project in November of twenty. That was before all this. I was on the board still at that time. At first, I mostly focused on getting activities on campus to try to raise the profile on campus. And we had a big speaker come and we did other things. But during the summer of 21, especially after I was relieved of my time (laughs) on the school board, two or three of us got together and started thinking about how can we make a difference in our community? The thing that catalyzed that actually was I heard that Canby was going to, somebody in the Canby was organizing a community summit, which they held like in November, I think, of 21. The, uh, I'm going to forget the guy's name, but he was a head of the uh, Rotary Club there. And he was working with some others. And their summit was to try, they were having divisions in their community too. And their summit was to try to get opinion leaders from across the spectrum. They invited 200 people to come for a meal, a little presentation, and a little bit of, uh, I can't remember, was it a little bit of activity to get people talking to each other about what the goals should be for Canby, trying to focus on the overarching goals that people might share, which sounded really promising. So I wrote to the guy. I don't think his name's going to come to me before we're done with the podcast. Uh, okay. I wrote to the, the man and asked if I could come watch because I was interested. In, I was working on a civilian project in Newburgh and we had similar issues as he was well aware by that point. And I wondered if I could just come and sit in. And he said, yeah. And then two people, Polly Peterson, who had not been on the board with me before, but had left the board before the 21 election. She was the one that recruited me to join the board when I first did. So she owes me stuff. And and the current, at that time, mayor, Rick Rogers, were Uh both interested in that. And so we asked if we could all three come. And then at that point, he said, well... We're Settle down. To, this is a Canby thing. Yeah, it is a Canby thing. We don't want you guys. And, you know, Newburgh already by that time had a little smell to it. So yeah, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. And so I didn't get to go to that. But afterwards, he gave us a debriefing. And okay. we met with him and he talked about what happened. It was very helpful. I should, the guy's name should come to me. He deserves it, but I don't have it in front of me. And so we decided, we thought we should have a summit or something like it here. So we started writing to people we knew. And by that time, that whole fall and end of 21 and into the winter of 22, I was doing something I never would have thought I would do. And I was having coffee with strangers. They would have the coffee. I'd have something else. But I was meeting with people that I didn't know, which is not my style. Somebody once urged me to run for state legislature like you. And I said, look, I go to church late, so I don't have to talk to people in the greeting hour. I don't think I'm a good politician. And I guess I proved that. But here I was doing all these meetings. And many of these people started kind of joining our little group. By January of 22, we were meeting it monthly. We didn't know who we were or what we were doing. But we were, the idea of this can be thing was the main thing we're talking about. And so that started to develop. 
out of it came and somebody else's most almost all of this is somebody else's idea not mine somebody who was there a guy named jerry lida was really interested in having monthly venues where people from different points of view would just come and talk about stuff even though they just stuff they disagreed on and that turned into our community conversations project which mm -hmm. is still going later that spring we decided you know, we're going to get into the 22 elections. There was going to be a candidates forum in the spring that I helped run. And we started thinking about whether we should develop a civility pledge of some sort. It took mm -hmm. us longer to do that. We didn't get it done until August or September. But we published it at, in September, right at the end of September in the graphic. And a lot of the candidates picked up on it and started saying, you know, I want to use this as a standard for my actions that's it's always a little no, hard to know how serious that is when a candidate does that it's usually the one that's ahead that says that but, yeah, yeah that's right that's right uh, but it was nice that they we didn't and we weren't trying to enforce it we weren't saying we're going to catch you and do uh, uh, you know we got you if you have a problem we just laid it out there and so we did another forum right after that came out in the fall and most of the candidates at that forum for the people running in the 22 general election endorsed the pledge on their own without any prompting from us. So we had the pledge. And then, oh yeah, school board election in 23. In the spring of 23, we were coming up to the school board elections again. And somebody, we were having one of our normal meetings. We call ourselves United as Neighbors in this format. One of the United as Neighbors meetings and a couple of women said, you know, why don't they just get together on a personal level, just have a little personal time before the before the election. Maybe they won't be so mean to each other. I love this idea so much. And so we didn't talk about that meeting, but I talked, pinched and hold these two ladies afterwards said, okay, you got to come meet me. <laughs> we're going to have coffee and we're going to see what we're going to do with this idea. And they fleshed, I just sat there and listened and recorded. They fleshed the whole idea out. We had one of our volunteers who has a really nice place to host people at her house. She decided to host it. We decided we wouldn't have all the United Neighbors people show up there because it would be mostly us. That we just had three people, but I think it ended up being four. Three people there to host, and we invited all the candidates to come with one person if they wanted to. I think we hmm. suggested their campaign manager, but it could have been their spouse. It was just one other person. There were a couple who were out of town. They didn't come. There were others who were reluctant at first to come. But we had some people call. We had people who knew them and we call one way or the other. And they'd all be nervous, right? Like, is this a trap? Like, are yeah. they trying to get me to do something? Does this favor my opponent? Like, of yeah. course, there's going to be natural nervousness. Yeah. The person that we had hosted, probably right of center, uh, but not particularly political. Some of the people who are visible on our group might be left of center. So I think it's hard for them to sort of know. But they all, mm -hmm. all the ones who were in town eventually came. And it was partly because we had people they did trust who came around and said, you know, you really need to go to this. And apparently I wasn't there because I had been on the school board before. I decided to absent myself from this because who knows mm -hmm. how they'd react to that. Some right. of them would know me and not be that comfortable with me. So I wasn't there. But the reports I got was that it went swimmingly. They just talked with each other. They got to know each other. And it went really well. And at the, I think as a result of that, all 10 candidates came to the candidates forum we had a week and a half later. And we're there to do it together. One of the questions I was going to ask you that I think you've already answered effectively is like, what are ideas or recommendations you would have for communities to sort of avoid the level of conflict? And I think some version of a pledge for local mm -hmm. office is smart. I love this idea of sort of nonpartisan community leaders convening a space for people to come together that's not public. Yep. You know, that's just a place to break bread together. And we weren't even allowed to talk about school board stuff. <laughs> there was a there was a quorum of the of the board there, so they could. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Are there any other? I've got a few more questions on this, but are there any other like ideas or recommendations or maybe lessons learned from your experience watching what happened in Newburgh that you would advise local community leaders across Oregon who really don't want what happened in Newburgh to happen in their community, but maybe see see signs of polarization in local office? Um, so I think having a group like United as Neighbors that's kind of working specifically on breaking down the polarization is very helpful. And it needs to be, I don't know if it has to be on its own, you'd think. I mean, because isn't this what some of the service clubs are supposed to do, you know? Isn't this what? Rotary, Kiwanis, yes. Elks <laughs> Club, <laughs> like, stuff. yeah. So we have three Rotary chapters right now. At least one of those is because of uh, one of the chapters we had split on politics. So <laughs> yeah, nobody's immune. But yeah, that kind of thing. And the fact that ours is pretty specialized, we don't demand anything of our group until it's time to do something. Although we have a little smaller group that kind of meets every month to think about what to do. And the fact that we are generating ideas, what I've been trying to do 
both for people on campus and people in the community is expose them to other people. So, mm -hmm. for example, I became familiar with a woman who runs a program called Just Create Community, and it's out of Hillsborough. Cindy Casenzo is her name. And she is worried about, she's not really on, trying to deal with politics directly, but she's just worried about division and alienation in mm -hmm. the in Hillsborough area. So just for Hillsborough, basically, she runs like a weekly coffee. Anybody mm -hmm. can show up. She publicizes that and they just chat. And then she, every every month or so, she runs one or two events like a pickleball day or, cool. or a hike someplace. And she just invites everybody or they do tours of businesses and things. And her goal is just to get people to know each other so that they are not, they have a reason to understand them as fully human beings. And they're less like, she thinks if you know somebody, you're less likely to hurt them. It's so good. It's kind of like the, are you familiar with Robert Putnam's bowling alone yeah. theory? Yeah, it's kind of like, that. Yes. yeah, it's the antidote. It's the antidote yeah. to like isolation. Okay, so I want to ask you this question, sort of somewhat selfishly, because I think you and I, if I was in Newburgh, I would have approached it differently than you. And I don't think my way is better than yours. And in fact, I, as I'm processing my question, I think it's actually important for people to be on all sides of this. But there's a tension inside of me between two things, mm -hmm. two main big ideas. One is like, be an advocate, mm -hmm. fight for the people who need to be fought for, uh -huh. do the right thing. Do not back down to bullies or people who are pushing for things that are against my values and like stand strong and call them out when their behavior is egregious or bad or bad faith or when they're damaging the community. Like there's a part of me that's like, that's the role of a community leader. But there's also a really big part of me that's like believes in American democracy and is very concerned about the state yeah. of things and knows that if we are not conciliatory and knows that if we're not community builders, I mean, if we're not compromisers, that things are very fraught right now. And we have to be able to live with each other and work together and govern together. So talk me through, do you have this, there's this, there's, I think it's Ellie Wiesel quote that's like, neutrality always favors the oppressor, never the oppressed. And so that's the advocate side of me that's like, do not be neutral in this, do not just be a convener. But there's this missing piece, right, of like, if we're all just fighting for certain viewpoints, then who's bringing us together? So talk me through how you process those kind of dynamics, those questions. It, it's a question that we faced right from the very beginning, even on campus. The first people to know about this Fieldy project were people on campus at George Fox. Uh -huh. And the first, one of the first responses, not necessarily the first, but among the first responses was from people who said, well, that sounds nice, but civility is so often used by people in power just to keep the people out of power from causing trouble. Somebody pointed me right away as an example to the background to Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. The letter he he's responding to a letter from pastors in Birmingham who are mm -hmm. asking him to quit to, to cool it a little, to quit disrupting life, uh, to quit raising conflict in the community. And his response in the letter is made, you know, it's one of the I Most think beautiful pieces one of the central yeah. documents of American political culture. That's right. Everybody should read it. Is you know, I can't do that. We have to highlight the issues that are going on in our community. People are being left out and discriminated against. And so like, just to be nice isn't right. And I agree with that. And understood the complaints that were coming, concerns, I guess I would say, were coming from some of the members of our own staff or student body. So from the very beginning, I wanted to frame civility in a way that did not amount to suppression of dissent. Or even or, neutrality, right? Civility doesn't mean neutrality necessarily. does not mean neutrality, no. I want to talk about that a little bit more later. But, okay. but that the idea of civility is a, it seemed to be clear. I mean, when I thought about it from the beginning, I don't know if I thought about it until after I started getting this pushback, although I anticipated the question already. But what, what's going to be my response? And I'm saying that civility needs to be more than just how I treat people in the moment. Hmm. It needs to be something that says, okay, we're in this together and we need everybody's voice. This might be easy for me because I, again, I'm the Quaker background. And one of the Quaker things that they, one of the things Quakers say is that there is that of God in every person. No person, you can take that a lot of different ways. No person's irredeemable, whatever. But that we're all carrying with us some image of God. And actually God is at work in everybody's life. And so I should be listening for that of God in every person. There's two ways it shows up. You we speak to that of God in every person, and we listen to that of God in every person. I could be taught by God through anybody. Hmm. That's the radical version of it. So I need to listen to them. 
That doesn't mean I have to agree with them. And in fact, it's probably going to be like the time when I was trying to run a United Neighbors meeting when I wanted to get something done. And darn Jerry Lida kept talking about, let's have these community conversations. He was off my agenda. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to do that. But fortunately, I let up and let them talk about it because it turned out to be one of our great projects. Well, that's the kind of thing I need to listen. There's something driving. What was driving Brian Shannon and his concern? I wanted, I needed to listen to that. I didn't make it real easy, but I and I didn't always listen, but that's what I needed to do. So I've been trying to describe civility as being a three-dimensional thing, not just a one-dimensional thing. Certainly the personal civility, the kind when your parents tell you to be civil, that they're talking about to try to treat people kindly and with respect. If I see Brian Shannon and he's dropped his groceries in the, in the store, I should help him pick them up. Mm-hmm. I would. But the that's the kind of civility that some people think that's all there is to civility, I guess. That it's just a superficial kindness, niceness. And it's, I think it's important because the relationships are important to us. They are one of the most precious resources we have. The relationship we have with anybody is precious. And we shouldn't waste it. We should be a good steward of that resource. But also, on top of that, when they actually disagree with us, that disagreement itself is a resource. Mm-hmm. and requires us to listen carefully. I, I don't know if I would say this with such confidence if I didn't have so much long experience in mediation, mm-hmm. where the disputes between mediators have within them the, the germ of the outcome that they neither one can see. And I, usually the mediators can't see at the beginning too. And it all, at a good mediation, it all comes out of their conversation. Same thing here. When we have a disagreement, I want to say, that's a gift. I want to embrace it. Oh, you're going to help me now. And again, my United as Neighbors Partners keep doing this to me. <laughs> they got ideas that I don't want to. I got to listen because our best ideas haven't been mine. They've been some of theirs. And that could happen in any setting. So we need to be stewards of the disagreement and handle the disagreement in a way that keeps the channels open to keep our opponent in the game rather than try to eliminate them from the game. Eliminating our opponents from the game is asking for unanimity, and that's dangerous in any group. And so we don't want to eliminate them from the game. We want them to be able to have a voice in the game. Well, we got to have everybody have a voice in the game. Everybody. Can I ask you about, so. I'm not done, but you go ahead. Okay. Actually, I don't want to take us off track. So you finish your point and then I'll come back to my question. So there's a third level too. Okay. And the third level is with, even in the absence of any particular disagreement at the time, to tend the political culture, to tend the ways that we engage in our political discussions. Get outside my bubble and understand people outside. This is Cindy Consenzo's work. She's kind of my patron saint for this now. Hmm. I hope she's a saint. Anyway, and the and practicing good listening skills and all that stuff and building habits and structures and processes where we treat our disagreements as resources and our even our opponent as a valuable resource. So that when we do have sharply held views, we can discuss them without destroying the community. And you can use those use those as an opportunity for the community to grow. Were you going to speak about neutrality as well? Yes, I was. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. None of this is neutral. So there is some temptation and work that we do to say we're neutral. I don't use that word because I don't think I don't think that's the word I want to use. What I'm going to say is we want to give equal access to every voice. Every voice should have access. And if somebody is dominating and not letting other people have access to the voice, we want to fix that. But we need to have, and so violence is out of the, this is gets really Gandhian at this point. <laughs> opposition to violence was because he thought it would destroy the opportunity for both sides to learn a better way in the process of a conflict. He understood that India needed to be independent, but he didn't want to do it violently because he also understood that India had some things that could possibly learn from the British. They had to have that exchange so they could both grow. This gets us to the question that I was going to ask before that I I imagine there's a lot of listeners who I bet the median listener of this podcast is like all the way with you, except for one thing, which is what about when your opponents are bad faith? What about when they don't care about the system? What about when they don't share a set of values that values democracy? What about when they aggressively maybe want to eliminate a set of people or I'm uh, not going to use the names of individual politicians, but I imagine most people know what we're talking about, right? What about in those situations? What about when things seem existential and it seems like the person or the group on the other side? And I actually, frankly, don't think this happens very much locally or even in the state of Oregon. A lot Mm -hmm. of this seems national level stuff, but there are people, figures, coalitions that maybe seem like they don't fit in this framework that you're developing of how we can navigate these sort of tense situations together. But I imagine you have pushback on my pushback. Uh, well, uh, if the problem is that people are, you know, I don't know what the word is, uh, scorched dirt politics to get things done, they're willing to destroy the enemy to get things done. 
or destroy the system to get to be in power. Or even destroy the system, right? Doesn't help if you join them in that. Mm. If you say, oh, I'll destroy your system back, I'll destroy you back. This is why we get to the polarization. And I suppose one side could take power if they had enough of it, but in any this would be a disaster. And I don't think any either side could avoid any side could avoid the disaster if their strategy has worked and they've eliminated the opposition. Basically, that means they only know what they know. And they've just cut off all the things they don't know. Every group that gets unanimous for too long is in trouble. I think the school board of Newburgh was in trouble because unanimity too long. That's why I voted for Brian Shannon. I didn't think he would be part of the unanimity. Hmm. So if if the vision is, well, it's got to be unanimous for me to make up for the, having been unanimous for them, you haven't brought anything to the table for just fighting. Hmm. And unless you happen to be entirely right, like which me. I have never... <laughs> or your group, or whatever group. My group happens to be entirely right, which I don't think is possible. There's never been a group that's been entirely right. And so what I'm saying is the scorcher's tactics, the destroy the opponent tactic doesn't get us anywhere. That's right. But what we do need is the ability to process and hear, hear and process, actually listen to and process the input of people who are hurting or are feeling left out or are worried about some kind of injustice happening. So that's why the third level of what I've talked about civility here, the tending to the political culture is so important. I don't think it's worth, it's going to be worth it in the long run to win if in the process you've destroyed the possibility for us to deliberate together as a community. I think that's really well said. And obviously I'm speaking at least in part about Donald Trump and the unique dynamic. I mean, it's I guess it's not a unique dynamic, but there are a lot of people who support and vote for and like Donald Trump who I think would not say that they don't believe in American democracy or don't want us to be able to live in a functional society together. And the problem is, is if we're just truly casting a broad brush and saying anyone who affiliates with this person is not someone who I will engage in conversation with, not someone who I will elevate, then exactly what you're speaking about, you're shutting off the ability to live and work and and be together, which seems like an awful scary place for us to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a challenge in any of these settings to figure out how to listen for what's what we can learn in a setting where various sides, various actors seem to think it's got to be all or nothing. Mm-hmm. I think uh, in, in my first six years on the board, I was always troubled because there was n- hardly ever any negative votes. I think I passed the first, I voted for the my second year of the board. I voted no. It's the first time anybody voted no. And everyone's like, what is he doing? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, I think their defense of that was they tried to listen, and we did. We yeah. did try to listen, but the board didn't represent the whole community, and it probably didn't realize how much it didn't, mm. And because we just didn't have the kinds of things that broke it open. Just before the uh, 2019 election, we had a stretch of bad times in the in the district where we had to riff twice in the same year. At the in mm. September and then later, like in March or February. And Riff for our listeners who aren't school board people means laid off, basically. Of course, yeah, they had yeah. to lay off teachers. First one was right after school started, which is just terrible time to do it. And then we had to do it again, teachers and other staff. And the part of the problem was it was kind of a just a, a sort of an accounting problem, but I think it was also because the board hadn't had been too comfortable mm. with each other, and mm-hmm. we really hadn't challenged it. Nobody was challenging each other. It was fun to be on that board. We all liked each other and we had good times together. We did some good things, but we had a blind spot. That was one of them. And we might've had more because we had no particular opposition on the board. I thought the board from 2019 to 2021 was the best equipped of all the boards that they'd had up until that time or that they had after the 21 election to actually do stuff because we had a couple of voices, particularly Brian, but also Dave, who were strong and bold and willing to challenge us. And I told both of them at their first different times in those two years that I thought that they were crucial to the board. Okay. So I'm going to ask, we're already over time and I apologize, Ron, but this is a, a fun conversation for me and I appreciate your time. Let me use a case study example that I think illustrates what I'm getting hung up on. Okay. In the 1960s and actually well before the 1960s too, in fact, it gets more egregious the earlier back you go. There was a group of people whose position was no civil rights, for African-Americans. And there's a group of people saying, absolutely, we need civil rights for Mm African-Americans. And today we all would agree one side was correct and Mm -hmm. one side was more than wrong, was immoral, 
evil might be too strong of a word, but something mm-hmm. approaching that level of horrible. I don't think the side was evil, but the what they accomplished was evil for sure. Right. So your framework is about you know valuing your opponents and learning and listening and not trying to eliminate them. Or does it still apply in a situation like that, or even in a more egregious situation like in you know pre World War II Germany, or you know in these moments of irregularity mm-hmm. does this framework still apply this is a really good question so in newburgh i don't ever think we ever got to that kind of agreed catastrophic problem so i haven't had to deal with that on a first-hand basis it's the kind of question that we pacifists since i am one mm-hmm. constantly get and mm-hmm. it's a difficult question the problem for the question the, the question is real i'm not trying to downplay it is talking about conditions that exist at the time that have to be dealt with mm-hmm. the way we deal with them lays the seed for the next thing mm. so the pacifist argument is that we have constantly escalated our willingness to use violence because we think that's the only thing that works when my argument would be that's not the only way it could have worked We've been basically disabling ourselves by using violence over and over again when nonviolence might have worked. I keep thinking that the American Revolution did not have to be violent. This is an argument I've had with one of my colleagues <laughs> years and years. Interesting. Who's a just war guy and thinks the American Revolution was a just war. Kind of. He's not even quite sure. But we're the only British colony that had to have a war to become independent. Why is that? All the other British colonies, including India, got the British to agree. I think we could have gotten the British to agree. So the idea that the war was necessary at that time seems to me to be bogus. Much of American history has been built on that. The Civil War was justified by people pointing back to the War of Independence. The Southern states thought that they were the new colonies of the North, in a, in a sense, and that they had every right to resist it, to, to cede. And if they were resisted, they had every right to fight. We use it to justify the future. And so the Hitler case is uh, the common one brought up. I don't have a complete answer, but a partial answer is this. Hmm. Had, say, World War I not happened, had World War I, the issues in World War I been handled differently, which would mm-hmm. maybe have required something else to happen earlier, maybe a Franco-Prussian War, I don't know, going all the way back, my European history fades after a while. I don't know <laughs> But, Mine faded uh, before you're faded. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I was born closer to it, too. That's, that's <laughs> so there were examples of people like Gene Sharp, who wrote about the politics of nonviolent action. I think that's the title. It's close to that. And Walter Wink has written on this, too. They point to the, not, the examples of nonviolent resistance that did work in various places, Denmark protecting the Jews, for example, or the Norwegians resisting the takeover of their schools by the Nazi party in Norway and things like that. Those are limited examples. I got it. But they do say that maybe there's some potential there that we haven't really explored. We have never spent the kind of resources and time and energy exploring nonviolent ways of doing things that we have on violent ones. And because we believe as Americans, the idea that violence has been crucial to our protection, protecting our way of life. And so we have hundreds of billions of dollars spent on the violent protection of America. And what are we spending on the nonviolent protection of our way of life? Hardly anything. Our little United's Neighbors group in Newburgh and the Civility Project, nobody has to be a, non, a pacifist to join them. Nobody has to give up on their goal for civil rights to work with us. You don't have to take a neutral position. Every one of us has political views. I have political views. I've already shared a couple of them, which most people would disagree with. We can all be working there on this, developing our skills and nurturing the soil of uh, what I'd call stewardship of the political culture so that we have less and less reason to use violence. That's not a complete answer to your question, but... I will say one more thing. Because we short circuit, I say, to the violent solution so quickly and the parallels of, say, you know, calling people and threatening them on the phone or boycotting their art displays, we never actually spend any time thinking about the other options. So they've been hardly explored at all in our culture. I want to say that one level, but on the other level, we do it all the time in our culture. We just don't apply it to the other parts of uh, the, these other situations. And so I don't, I'm not aware that we are, I would say we're not at any place right now where it would be, well, I'm going to be kind of the last guy to be convinced, but that where I could be convinced that not, there aren't any nonviolent ways to do it. The thing in Newburgh about the Black Lives Matters and gay pride flags could have been resolved to the satisfaction of just about everybody had we had the means and the way to do it in mind. And mm. we didn't. 
And that's on me as, as well as other people. We didn't. Well, Ron, I've kept you longer than I promised, but this has been a fascinating conversation. And I've disagreed with a lot of what you said and agreed Good. with a lot of what you said and certainly learned from you. And I hope and imagine it will be as valuable for listeners who maybe had their perspectives challenged from the conversation as well. So thank you for the time. And before we break, give a little plug for the Civility Project and where folks can learn more about it. And if they want to get in touch with you, how should they go about doing that? Okay, so the Spillery Project is a project of, the, of uh, George Fox University. It's run out of the president's office. We have a website, civility at georgefox.edu. You can email me at civility.georgefox.edu. That's the email. Uh, we have a website, and uh, I have a newsletter if people are interested in it. If you email me at civility at georgefox.edu, I'll get you on the email list, and you can find out what we're doing. Not just in Newburgh. I've been moving around the state and making presentations in other places. I'm glad to come anywhere in the Pacific Northwest if there's a group that would like to just chat, see if there's any ideas that we can develop together. So yeah. That's awesome. We'll put a link to the uh, Civility Project in the uh, show notes so folks can click on it there. Excellent. Uh, all right, Ron, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Ben. And thank you for disagreeing with me. I'm officially grateful. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> all right.